Good morning, everybody. Once again, I see the numbers clocking up. I know it takes a little while for each one to find their own point of connection, their own point of insertion into this work. So we will allow a few moments for those who are in the in the queue, in, in the series filing into our digital waiting room to find their way. It's good to see that Marina Venica has found her way into the room. Good morning, Marina. Um, but each one of you, wherever you are joining us from, whatever your time of morning, time of day, time of evening, um, whether this is the first time you are joining us or whether you have been with us from the start of this journey together, I, I welcome you today to the ninth installment of the London Society's seminar reading, Seminar 17, The Other Side of Psychoanalysis. Today's chapter, chapter nine, The Ferocious Ignorance of Yahweh, is probably the shortest chapter of this seminar in terms of pages. This might lure us into thinking that we can perhaps take a breather given the pace of, of reading, this pace of the weekly seminar um, has certainly meant that we have to, to stay up to speed with, with the work of the seminar, given that life has not exactly been on hold on other fronts. So there's this whole series of questions and secondary references accumulating around our work on the seminar, various avenues for exploration branching off on all sides. We've also seen that there are no easy chapters in this seminar. And I would like to think that this particular chapter might be considered as, shall we say, just the tip of the iceberg, in some way a, a hidden peak in the sequence of seminars, in, uh, of sessions in this seminar. In one sense, it constitutes the culmination, the, the quilting point of the argument that we have seen Lacan pursuing through the previous chapters of this middle section entitled From, From Myth to Structure. Starting with the chapter on the castrated master, but more particularly with the exploration of the series addressing the Oedipus complex, totem and taboo, and now Moses and monotheism, which if nothing else will have given us plenty of secondary reading to pursue in terms of the references to the Freudian text. Here we see Lacan's exploration of the myth of the father in Freud, examination of the status of the father, the paternal function, as distributed between the three registers, symbolic, imaginary, real, and in particular as indexed on the question of castration. In this particular chapter, we will see Lacan seeking to prize open the relation, the distinction between prohibition and castration, opening up a new horizon for the psychoanalytic clinic. It's striking that the argument of this chapter will be pursued via the initial distinction between knowledge, knowing what we are doing, knowing what we are saying, and something that Lacan will describe as following a trace, catching the scent of something without quite knowing what that something is. 
but pursued here in conversation with Dr. Kako. Something also played out in the relation between speaking and reading, or between the spoken and the written. A mode of speaking based on the reference to the letter of the text, the written, the written trace, which I think is quite an appropriate reference for, the, for, for, for what we are doing here. Speaking about the reading of a written text that is in itself reconstituted from the recorded traces of a spoken presentation that, is, that was based on Lacan's own written notes of what he himself had been reading in Freud. So when I say this chapter might be considered the tip of the iceberg, it's not just in terms of the platform on which it rests, but also, shall we say, because this chapter in the sequence of presentations in this seminar is pitched between the previous session, which was devoted to the reading of some of the questions and answers that make up Lacan's text, Radiophonie. Again, a written text that is the basis for a spoken broadcast, a text that in itself could form the basis for an entire year's work, but of which we, we do not yet have a published English translation, but contains some of the essential written references for some of the themes that are being pursued in the course of this seminar. Let's also not overlook the following chapter, chapter 10, the questions and answers on the steps of the Pantheon on account of the closure of the faculty uh, during to a strike. This chapter would also repay close attention, even though it is not included in our particular trajectory uh, this, in this seminar. Not because you can feel free to ignore that chapter, but primarily because in planning this chapter, 12 weeks somehow seemed to provide the right framework for the project. And so we found ourselves excluding the extra chapter, the plus one, which is by no means surplus to requirements, but which constituted to some extent the awkward 13th term that disrupted our misguided quest for some kind of symmetry. Speaking of the 12 weeks of our journey, I will also take a moment to mention, without wanting to get too far ahead of ourselves, that after today's seminar, we have only three more episodes of our work together on this project. I've mentioned before the anomalies of the subjective experience of the passage of time as measured by our trajectory through the seminar. Most of all, during this period of enforced suspense, when some of the conditions, the external conditions of our existence might have been put into suspense. But as I'm sure each one of you will have experienced in your own way, the drive does not go to sleep, does not cease its pursuits just because some of the external dynamics of our existence are on hold. So even as we get closer to the end of this series of seminars, where it is still no clearer what kind of future we are in fact working towards, how this will all end, what kind of promised land we might be being led towards. All we know is that it is unlikely to involve dying of shame. All this merely to urge you to take your opportunity to pursue the reading of the seminar, to formulate your questions, 
maybe not even so much in the expectation of receiving the answers that we might have hoped for, but for each one of us to leave some kind of trace, some kind of subjective mark of this experience that we have undertaken together in relation to the reading of this work of Lacan. I'm very pleased to welcome as today's guide on our journey, Susanna Hula, analyst member of the NLS and of the World Association of Psychoanalysis, a member of the London Society, but who has also lived in Argentina, in Israel, and in Spain, pursuing her relation, her singular relation to the analytic cause in various psychoanalytic communities and cultures. She is thus eminently well-placed to bring us today the fruit of many years of clinical experience, many years of studying and teaching Lacan in her approach to the theme of today's chapter entitled Yahweh's Ferocious Ignorance. Before I hand over to Susanna, I will also just quickly take the chance to introduce today's discussant, Gil Carroz, who is a psychoanalyst in Brussels, who is also analyst member of the NLS, of the ECF, and the World Association of Psychoanalysis. He has occupied various responsible roles in each of these schools, including a period, if I'm not mistaken, as president both of the NLS and of the ECF. I thank him also for agreeing to act as discussant today, to intervene with some comments and questions in order to open up the conversation afterwards to the members of the panel and to the audience. I remind you that you are all able to participate in this discussion by making use of the chat function that you will find at the foot of your screen. In the course of the presentation itself, but also afterwards, contributing your own comments and your questions, which we will seek to take up as we can as part of the ensuing discussion together. But for now, let us hear what Susanna has prepared to tell us about this intriguing chapter. Susanna? Thank you very much. Um, I want to thank the Bureau of the London Society, Roger Litten, Peggy Papada and Phil Drivers for organizing and leading this seminar that breaks the quarantine in a very good way, I would say, since makes us feel connected in our solitude of the, long the lockdown. The way this seminar functions, in which each meeting has a different speaker, is extremely interesting and teaches a lot, since it gives us the possibility of witnessing the distance of the spoken word from the text with different styles of the different people that speak. I find it very amusing and awakening. I will share with you the path that had in me an effect of truth, hoping that my talk will have in you this same effect of truth, or better to say, it will have more or less the same effect since sexual relation does not exist. So we are dealing with the ninth chapter, The Ferocious Ignorance of Yahweh. In this lesson, as Roger mentioned, part of the time, Mr. Kako took the scene, invited by Lacan. He is working on comparative Semitic religions. 
His main topic in his talk was the historiographic critique of Ernst Selim's claim that Moses has been murdered as a martyr. Selim read the book of the prophet Oseas, Oshea, which is the only one of the prophets that mentions Moses and his heroic lead of the Jewish people out of Egypt. The name Moses doesn't appear in the book, but nevertheless. Carco claims that Selim's interpretation of the verses is wrong and is probably influenced in his readings by his Christian beliefs. Now, why do we talk about Selim? Because in the man Moses and monotheism, the man Moses and monotheism, Freud quotes his investigation, Selim's investigation about the murder of Moses. Now, Lacan's question is, why did Freud need to state that Moses was murdered? Freud connected the history of the Jews with a hidden feeling of guilt due to the murder of the original father, the Urfater. Freud was looking for an answer to a burning question. What can explain the suffering of these people and the amazing fact that they still want or they are compelled to or are under the zwang, the compulsion, to be Jewish. And they persist as a people. He considers the Christian religion as the one that solves the problem of this unconscious feeling of guilt through redemption and identification with the prophet that is killed and becomes the son of God. Freud, while writing this last book on a great man, Moses, was a witness to the ascension of the National Socialism, and he could, by sure, hear the voice and the low German language of Hitler in the radio. One of the unpronounced questions in the book could have been, why Hitler? How did he become a leader, being so bluntly the very opposite of a great man? Now, Freud begins his book with a kind of apology for stating that Moses was not a Jew, but an Egyptian. Depri he says, depriving a people from a man that this people celebrates as the greatest of his sons is not something that he will do happily or carelessly, more so being himself a Jew. But truth, Freud says, is above national interests. Now, today, since Lacan's 16th and 17th seminar, we are not so sure about the power of truth and we are aware of the impossibility of a truth about the real. In 1956, said Lacan, Seminar 3, the chapter 17, in English, page 214, 
that in writing Moses and monotheism, Freud makes you feel that analysis is absolutely inseparable from a fundamental question about the way truth enters into the life of man. The dimension of truth is mysterious, inexplicable, since man accommodates himself to non-truth perfectly well. According to Lacan, this is the question that is troubling Freud to the end in this book, in Moses and Monotheism. Freud's answer to this question, and according to Lacan's reading, is that truth is mediated by the ultimate, ultimate meaning of the idea of the father. The father belongs to a reality that is sacred in itself, more spiritual than any other, since nothing in live reality points to its function, his presence, his dominance. How does the truth of the father, how does this truth that Freud himself calls spiritual, Freud called it Geisterkeit, how does this truth come to be placed in the foreground? The thing is thinkable only by means of this ahistorical drama inscribed in the very flesh of men at the origin of all history. Meaning the death, the murder of the father. A very mysterious myth, impossible to avoid in the coherence of Freud's thought. Moreover, Lacan reads in this book a nifine, me funai, but Peggy Papada told me that I have to say nifine, of the old Freud. Meaning, would have been better not to have been born, which Lacan quotes from Oedipus in Colon. And we can find also this kind of thought in sacred texts like the Ecclesiastes and the Gemara. In the Gemara, it was a topic for an important discussion between two different schools of thought, Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. The outcome of that discussion in the Talmud was, it is better for man not to have been created, but since he has been created, he should examine or to ramage his actions. As to Lacan's question, why did Freud need to state the murder of Moses? I found very clear Miller's development in 2003 in the last lessons of seminar and for the poesie, where he says that for Freud, the compulsive character of thinking and believing in religion can't be based only in communication. Because that that is only communicated from mouth to mouth is under the logical thinking. It would not have the character of a zwang, of a compulsion. 
an imposed thought in the modality of the necessary, as it is the religious belief, has to have been repressed, has to have been introduced in the unconscious, and only in this way can a tradition come back from repression and constrain the thoughts in its spell or its curse. For Miller, this is the secret of Freud's invention of the murder of Moses, the Egyptian, that brought monotheism from outside, from Egypt. The S1 as extim, coming from outside. Freud applies the clinic of trauma on the crowd, on a community. And in this clinic of trauma, the ideas and events of the time of the trauma have been forgotten and repressed. Only after generations, thinks Freud, Moses' truth comes back. And then we have two Moses. I, I never was told that in the kindergarten. The fact that the master signifier has been forgotten makes it irreducible, indestructible, and can't be tamed by logic. From this, Miller proposes that Lacan answer to this book of Freud with his invention of the discourse of the master. Since Freud's book teaches that only when repressed, the master signifier has immense power. More fundamentally, Miller says, the book is a question about the drive. That is, about what the drive has as deranged, unhinged. I think it was a terrible and urgent question to be asked when Germany was leading a terrible war against culture. About our chapter, a question I had was, why is this the name of the chapter? What makes it the best summary of the chapter? Yahweh's ferocious ignorance. Lacan learned about this ferocious ignorance of Yahweh in the book of the prophet Oseas. In this book, Lacan reads, I understand, the imposition of monotheism of the discourse of the master, beating the myths. A book that witnesses the clash between paganism and monotheism in which Lacan learns history. Now, which ignorance is Yahweh's ignorance? And why is it absolutely necessary for Yahweh to be ferocious in his ignorance? Seems to be that Yahweh didn't have to have many reasons to be ferocious. He was ferocious. We have an answer in the lesson itself in page 135, where Lacan says, to be a father, 
not only a real father, but a father of the real, there are things that one must ferociously ignore. One would have to ignore everything that is not of the level of structure. This level to be defined as the order of the effects of language. This is where one falls upon truth. And then he says the opposite. Or from truth. Yahweh is ferociously ignorant of everything that exists of certain religious practices that were rife at that time and that are founded on a certain type of knowledge, sexual knowledge. Now, about this knowledge, does Lacan mean by this the knowledge as a means of jouissance that we learned about in chapter three? I think it is not. Uh, I rely here in a very clarifying assertion of Miller's in the lesson of 28th of January 1998 in the seminar Partners in Tom, in which he says, knowledge as a means of jouissance, as a phrase, is a translation of the seventh chapter of the Tramdeutung. There, in this text of 1898, we learn from Freud that in a state of desire, the acquired knowledge in a previous experience of satisfaction with the object produces an hallucinatory satisfaction which does not stem from the obtention of the object of necessity. And this justifies, said Miller, a psychic apparatus to be at stake. Meaning that, that desire and his hallucinatory realization leaves a trace, a mark, and the subject is more interested in the pleasure that gives him the trace than that from the real object. So we have here, therefore, in Freud, the connection between signifier and satisfaction. This apparatus exists under the power of the discourse of the master that comes to life with monotheism. This is not the same knowledge, or maybe the savoir-faire, that Lacan connects to paganism. Now, what does it mean that God ignores what exists? In Je parle au mur in Santan in 1971, Lacan says that ignorance is not a low value. It's not a deficit either. It is linked with knowledge is a way of establishing knowledge, to make it established knowledge. 
That is why he could say that Oedipus became a master, but by having erased the question of truth when he solved the riddle posed by the Sphinx. Established knowledge is the opposite of truth, of the effect of truth. It does not search for an effect of truth. Now, no doubt that the God that was one wanted precisely to consolidate the knowledge in a set of laws as a father of the real. Lacan attributes sexual knowledge to the practices of prostitution. This would be a mythical knowledge that would regulate the life of men. We know there were prostitutes in the temples, like sacred prostitutes in the temples, and their crazed practice was part of the cult and the rite in the relation with the pagan god Baal and his wife. Sexual knowledge in the circumstances of the visit to the temple would be, no doubt, a savoir-faire and a mixture, mixture of different kinds of jouissances. The sexual one and the one that originates in a certain knowledge of what God is and what he expects from you in order to return to you his favors. Lacan puts very clearly, though, that this knowledge would not, in any case, say what the sexual relation is. Now, prostitution was not forbidden in the Jewish religion, but it was absolutely forbidden to mix prostitution with the worship of God and with the family life. Freud would say in Moses and Monotheism that God from Monotheism would be completely separated from sexuality and exalted as an ideal of ethical perfection. Meaning that this belief, this worship of God, entailed a drive resignation, according to Freud, connected with laws about mating as well as the resignation to see an image of God and to pronounce his name. The people had got a name, Israel, but their God will be what he will be, or I am what I am, a ye asher heye. In the lesson of 11 of March, in Oedipus, Moses, and the father of the herd, that we learned with Alexander, Lacan said that one thing is certain, all relations with women are znunim, prostitution. Lacan tells us that he had read Osea, Osea, and he says, God addresses Osea because his people have prostituted themselves definitively. Prostitution covers everything that surrounds him, the entire context. Whereas the, what the master discourse uncovers is that there is no sexual relation. 
Our chosen people found themselves in a bit of a pickle where things were very probably different, where there were sexual relations. This is probably what Yave calls prostitution, said Lacan. Now, he reads prostitution as the mythical knowledge that regulated life. In this book, Lacan finds the history of the struggle between monotheism and the knowledge embedded in myths. Well, because of the comments of Lacan on Oseas, I read the book of the prophet too. And I was astonished, baffled by his first verses. Then I understood why they didn't teach us the book in the school. God orders Oseas to take a prostituted woman as his wife and make with her prostituted children. At this stage of my preparation of this talk of today, I had to call Jerusalem to a great rabbi, since Lacan says that every rabbi is great. This one is really great. And describe my astonishment to him. Now, in other occasions, I would have from him an answer on the spot, in which the rabbi would say and claim different things. This question, this time, seems to have been a tough one. Therefore, he said, I shall call you back. He called me back and brought for me an answer from the Midrash, meaning the Talmud from Babylon, Masechet Psachim, and said as follows. According to the Midrash, which Lacan described in Radiophony as a way of taking distance from the written by the spoken word, according to the Midrash, God approached Oseas and ordered him to go to the people and admonish them bitterly for their bad behavior. And God showed his great anger. Oseas replied, O oh God, you are the master of the world. If the Jews behave so badly, you can go to another people on earth and make them your children. It was quite chutzpah, this answer, this proportion of Oseas. God understood at this stage that Oseas was not up to the job of a prophet and told him to have prostituted children with a prostitute and when he will be asked by God to give away one of the children, he will say, I cannot, he is my child. When all this happens, and Oseas had three children, he became fit to be the prophet Oseas that spoke in the name of God. This Midrash sounds quite far from the text, but through the name of 
Osea's children, God was tithing very strongly the prophet's family with his commands and his teachings. This Midrash solves perplexity facing those verses by adding meaning that pleases the belief of having been chosen, a very biased answer. Lacan once asked, why is monotheism an advantage in human's life, supposing it is an advantage? Towards the end of seminar three, the seminar on psychosis, it produces an answer. It has to do the answer with the innumerable fears that are present in human life. And I quote, to have replaced these innumerable fears by the fear of a unique being who has no other means of manifesting his power than through what is feared behind these innumerable fears is quite strong quite an accomplishment. Difficult sentence. This is in capital in, in chapter 21 in June. Now, reading this chapter, this chapter, not only this one, and following our discussion in this seminar, I felt it would be helpful for me in my search of the effect of truth that pulls me out from the established knowledge to follow my questions and astonishments. I wanted to have a short vademecum of Lacan's statements about sexual relation and prohibition and the myths of Oedipus and his destiny. I also thought that it's easier to understand what does it mean that there is no sexual relation, reading what Lacan says precisely about when there is sexual relation. At this moment, I had to call Tel Aviv, and I had the help of a friend to recall the different places in Lacan's teaching where to find what I remembered. I thank Nehama Gesser, for her help and her enthusiastic engagement in our conversations. So, first step in the Vademekum. It comes from the following year, Seminar 18, in the chapter 6. Lacan says, what we consider is essential about the sexual jouissance. Sexual jouissance can't be written. Man, qua man, as long as he functions, is castrated. The woman, if she exists, has nothing to do with the letter. Now, it is because of this reason that she does not exist. Considered as the woman, she has nothing to do with the law. So, how do we have to understand what happened? Asked Lacan. People make love, isn't it so? We perceive what causes the problem when we take interest in it, precisely. When we try to structure 
make the sexual relation function through symbols, what stands then as an obstacle? The fact that Jewissance gets involved. And then he asks, is the sexual jouissance treatable directly? It is not. Now, we know somebody that ended in jail convinced that jouissance is treatable directly, and his name was Willem Reich. Well, is it jouissance treatable directly? It is not. And that is why speech exists. Discourse begins because there is there a gap. We could also say that the gap is produced because discourse begins. Again, one thing and the opposite. The truth is that discourse is implied in the gap. The symbolization of sexual jouissance borrows all his symbolism from jouissance that is prohibited for some confused things, said Lacan. We can articulate it with the pleasure principle, and this has only one meaning, not too much jouissance, since all the jouissances end in suffer. It becomes therefore clear that in order to be structured, the sexual jouissance found his reference in prohibition, as named, of jouissance. So prohibition, so the sexual jouissance can be structured. The sexual jouissance only gets its structure from prohibition that falls on the jouissance directed to the own body, in the edge of the mortal jouissance. It only achieves the sexual dimension, directing the prohibition on the body from which comes the own body, that is, upon the mother's body. Only the law can bring to discourse what has to do with sexual jouissance. Now, in 1971, in December the 2nd, in Saint-Anne, in, in what is called Je parle au mur, Lacan said, there is no sexual relation for the beings that speak. Why? I like it very much that he asks and he answers. Because their speech, the speech of the being that speak, the way it functions depends. It is conditioned as speech by this, that this sexual relation is a speech forbidden to function in a way that permits to account for, for it. Randre Conte. I do not say that speech exists because there is no sexual relation. That would be absolutely absurd, said Lacan. I do not say either that there is no sexual relation because speech is there. But the being speaks, and it is but from speech that proceeds 
juissance, that which is called sexual, to be differentiated from sexual relation, sexual proportion. Only sexual juissance determines what has to be obtained, namely the coupling. Speech creates the make-believe, the semblance of woman and man, meaning that woman and man are semblance and not reals. In my view, I have to say all this means that substitution of prohibition by impossibility is not complete. When Lacan reinterprets the prohibition of desire as the impossible of jouissance, the loss of jouissance in repetition is still spoken as prohibition, stemming from obscure places. Obscure is important word, in my opinion. And now, the 17th of February, 1976, in the Santom. He said, to the extent that there is a Santom, there is no sexual equivalence. That is to say, there is relation. Indeed, meaning that in psychosis there is relation. Indeed, if non-relation stems from equivalence, then relation is structured to the extent that there is no equivalence. I, I didn't read it properly. Indeed, if non-relation stems from equivalence, then relation is structured to the extent that there is no equivalence. Therefore, there is both sexual relation and no relation. Where there is relation, it is to the extent that there is symptom, phantom. That is to say, to the extent that the other sex is supported by the symptom. I, said Lacan, allowed myself to say that the symptom is very precisely the sex to which I don't belong, that is, a woman. If a woman is a symptom for any man, it's quite clear that another name needs to be found for what's involved in man for a woman, since the symptom is characterized precisely by non-equivalence. This is the only thing, the only nook in which what is known as sexual relation in the parletry, in the human beings, finds a support. That was in Saint-Tom. Now, in L'Institut de l'Ambevius et l'Amour, the 15th of March, 77, he said, I don't recognize all the women. Mm -hmm. Because if there was sexual relation, we have to think sexual proportion, every man would recognize and mate with every woman, which is not the case. I don't recognize all the women. Sexual relation, there is not, except incestuous incestuous. That is exactly what Freud said, said Lacan. There is not except incestuous or murderous. 
The myth of Oedipus appoints that the only person with whom you want to sleep is the mother, and the father you kill. The more so if you don't want that they are your mother and your father. In Le Moment de Conclure, 11 of April 1978, he said, I announced that there is not sexual relation. It is the basis of the psychoanalysis. There is no sexual relation except for the neighboring generations, that is, the parents from one side, the children from the other. It is what the prohibition of incest faces. Knowledge is always linked with la asexualité. There is no sexual relation but thoughts, and this is, I think, very important for our discussion. There is no sexual relation but thoughts orient themselves. They crystallize on what Freud has called imprudently the Oedipal complex. The tragedy gave him in this form a myth, something that states that it is not possible to prevent the son from killing his father. So here I would like to stress that thoughts orient themselves. You can't think without an orientation. Sexuality is unthinkable without an orientation. When Lacan says that the Oedipal complex is a dream of Freud's, we have to remember that a dream, what I said last week, that a dream has a navel which connects it to what can't be said or thought. Means, this dream of Freud has a connection to the real, and the law that prohibits incest is a real, I think, being the basic law of human society. Lacan says that it is not that the Oedipal complex has nothing to do with what we do in analysis. But we learned that it became a serious obstacle. We learned that, helped by Lacan, of course. It became a serious obstacle when it became a myth that would regulate analytical work, or even worse, it would regulate the life of the analysis. This dream of Freud became established knowledge that obstructs the way of truth, of the truth that appears in any analysis if you are able to listen. When you are stuck with the established knowledge, you can't listen. I think that I understood better what Lacan meant in his critics of the complex, reading the case of the flight talks, which is a case that has been published in Brussels. A case that he mentions in different occasions, in Seminar 4, Seminar 6, and in the direction of the cure. 
We see there in Lacan's description of Rotlebovici's description of the case, we see there that the analyst pushes her patient to acknowledge his Oedipal desires. And as a response to this real presence, I put it in brackets, of the analyst, he concludes that in order to be cured, he has to sleep with the analyst. That's what the analysant concluded. After this logical conclusion, the analysant takes action and enjoys, finds his truth, not the analyst's truth, in what is called a transitory perversion, during which repetitions he feels for the first time that he is really alive. Well, for the end of my, for this part of our seminar, before our discussion, I will say that many years before all this, far before the Second War, but when fascism had already begun to show his claws in 1920, Freud stated in his essay, Psychology of the Crowd and Analysis of the Ego, that, and I quote, the sexual drives restricted from their goals give way to enduring connections due to the lack of total satisfaction. These are the links in a crowd. The question Freud poses is on the relation of the direct sexual drives to the collective formation. Two people reunited, reunited in order to obtain sexual satisfaction become, because of the desire of loneliness, a living argument against the gregarious instinct and the collective feelings. The influence of the crowd from the other side exteriorizes as shame and jealousy protects the election of the sexual object from a collective tie. In the orgy, from the other hand, love and real election disappears and all the objects have the same value. I wonder if this is what meant Lacan when he talked about the fact that they, the Jews were uh, having sexual relations. Uh, Freud again. Amorousness, amorousness appeared quite late in the relations among men and women. Therefore, was also late the development of the opposition between sexual love and collective tie. I find this very important. And to the end, the love of a, for the woman breaks the collective links of race, nationality, and social class. And in these ways, achieves an extremely important civilization work. Thank you. Then it is we who must thank you. I, I, I find myself 
let's say, just about at a loss for words to to formulate my my appreciation for the, for the way you have taken us through the, the plowing of this field and and rendering it fertile for us not in any way shall we say in terms of adding to our knowledge but rather more and far more importantly by putting in question everything everything we think we might have known on these questions which shall we say seems to me a far more productive and provocative use of knowledge in the sense of using knowledge to produce questions even the questions we don't know how to formulate let alone how to answer but as you yourself said when you set out in order to produce effects of truth and maybe it's the effects of truth that have the capacity of transmitting something beyond the question of a communication of a knowledge something you formulated very clearly for yourself as as, as you set out now I, I i'm not going to ask any i'm going to restrain myself from asking the questions because i know gil has has some comments prepared but i can't help just commenting on how striking i found the the most minimal formulation that, that you brought into focus for me putting into parallel the rise of monotheism and the rise of the master discourse it's not something that's ever registered for me and the consequences of simply running those two questions alongside each other uh, for me are profound in terms of tracing out the consequences um, in what way would the rise of monotheism amount to the establishment of the master's discourse um, and that would in terms of the political consequences that would allow us to pursue the other brief articulation that you made at, right at the start of your talk where in contrast to the question why moses you posed the question why hitler and 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 for me that that's uh, that's so powerful because in contrast to the question why moses why the great man why the great leader instead we see the flip side of the question how is it that these particular characters the very opposite of a great man or a great leader can come into the position where they have the dominant effect in our cultural times and we don't need to look very far for examples in our times so there's plenty for us to discuss and plenty for us to follow through this using the the framework of of what you've elaborated for us but first, I'm pleased to be able to ask Gil to, to make some comments and, and raise some questions for us to, to discuss together. Gil? Yes, thank you, Roger. I also had this uh, impression that uh, many of the, of, the points, of the points you bring... Sorry, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Digital connectivity, you can't switch it off. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I also had this impression that you ask questions which are uh, that are uh, uh, provocative and uh, um, force us force us to 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 get out of our habits. Uh, some formula that we repeat again and again. Uh, uh, I put the question here, and then this is very interesting. Uh, um, 
I want to also to thank you, Suzanne, for this uh, exploit uh, of a commentary of a chapter that is not uh, a whole speech of Lacan, but uh, that is in itself uh, Lacan's commentary of the paper of André Charcot. Uh, Kako, sorry, Kako, not Charcot, uh, whom he invited to be put in the picture of Mio Parfait. I don't know how to translate it, Mio Parfait. Gil, could I ask you to put, Susanna, could I ask you to mute your microphone? Because I think we might be getting feedback from Gil coming through your microphone, and that's making it a bit difficult to follow. I, that's the only thing I can. Gil, can you just rephrase that last bit, which which was difficult to hear? Uh, what I said, it's the yes. It's, uh, Lacan says that uh, he invited the caco in order to to be mio uh, parfum, mio parfum of of a knowledge about uh, exegesis. Alors mio parfum. I don't know how to translate it. I, I translated it put in put into the picture or. Yeah, or, or maybe catching the scent. About is that the phrase? Yes, about the exegesis of the Bible, the one that is not allegoric, but uh, goes through a kind of a work on the letter. Uh, by the way, the, the example that you that was given to, to, to you by the rabbi is not this kind of, a, of interpretation. I think it's a, we can see that in the Midrash there is there's many, there's, it's not the only way to interpret uh, the little story of uh, Osea challenging uh, God uh, and God's reaction. It's, it's I think, uh, clearly an allegorical interpretation, not, uh, not, not, uh, not a work of, uh, not a kind of work uh, on the letter. I think you give us a very good key to read all the chapter in the commentary that you made about the title. Uh, we are used, used to think uh, of, of the God of Abraham as a ferocious one, the one who is always angry on, on his chosen uh, people, uh, cruelly punishing him, etc. We distinguish, distinguish this God, the God of Abraham from the Christian God, of the universal love, and also from the God of philosopher who guarantee, guarantee the reassuring of knowledge of science. But reading carefully the title, we see that here the ferocity of the God of Abraham is not exactly that one. It's not the fact that it is punishing his, 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 his people all the time, even the even though it makes part of it, but it's first of all a ferocity, a ferocity of his ignorance. Hello. Um, so you explain uh, very well the ignorance, the ignorance that is at stake. It is not a low level of knowledge, but rather uh, not wanting to know anything about sexual knowledge. It's, uh, in a way, the strength of this ferocity is the strength of uh, censorship. I think, in the in terms of the um, <clears throat> the second topic of Freud. So, <clears throat> so the, it, it's the strength of the the censorship that allows repression. Moreover, uh, if it's a not wanting to know anything about sexual knowledge, it's all it also the conditions 
the condition of the existence of an established knowledge, uh, established knowledge. Sexual knowledge has to be repressed because it disturbs established knowledge. It's also interesting that you situate this ferocity as, uh, as uh, Roger said, of the monotheistic God as having a, a political stake at, in the struggle between uh, monotheism and paganism uh, that, uh, that did not repress knowledge, uh, sexual knowledge in, in, in its uh, worship. So this is the, the point where, as Roger said, uh, <coughs> the discourse of the master is, is uh, is give birth, it gives birth to the discourse of the master. And you also show us that after Lacan, this, this ferocious operation of repression is not attributed to God anymore, but to language itself, to the structure. And I think that's why uh, Lacan, for example, in the in the preliminary question, uh, say that one cannot say anything about his sexual knowledge, about his prostitution, about znunim. Uh, one cannot speak about his own sexual practice without being being obscene. <clears throat> um, so the first question I would ask uh, will be the following. What can you say? It's a little bit, uh, I think you can take it, you, you, you come back to it in the, in the end of your uh, intervention, but what can you, we say about God of civilization today? Uh, uh, or about the function of the symbolical language today? I, I have in mind uh, what Lacan says in the, the last uh, chapter that we, so we will soon read, two months later, yes, that we will read uh, with Eric Laurence uh, very soon, that is that de these days, he said it in 1970, it is very difficult to make someone be ashamed. Uh, what, do you, what do you say, what would you say today when sexual uh, knowledge, znunim, in Hebrew, is uh, is easily accessible everywhere. God, God is is not a ferocious uh, ferocious anymore. Or maybe uh, uh, can we really say that there is no monotheistic God anymore? Well, this will be my first question. I have uh, four more, but uh, <laughs> that are shorter. But, uh, Susanna, how, how do you want, would you like to respond to that? Yes, bueno, uh, okay. I would like to be able like the to say, I'll call you back, <laughs> but I can't do it. So, um, I think what is ferocious today is uh, the push to enjoyment, the push to do sons. Yeah. Now, uh, no doubt that uh, the obscenity of the pornography internet and the obscenity of the reality shows uh, changed our culture. You see it in the analysis. Mm -hmm. You see that uh, people, um, in order to teach, uh, for instance, I, I had uh, in analysis the, the 
principle of a world of psych psychotic uh, world in Veryakov. And he said that he will show something through a movie to the nurses and the doctors of his uh, world. And I decided to stop him. And I told him that a reality show won't teach anything, that he has to think what he wants to teach before he shows. It was not a very psychoanalytic intervention, but I had to do it, I thought. Now, um, that comes together with the fact that nowadays you are ashamed to be ashamed. <laughs> you are ashamed of uh, wanting to close the door when you walk to the bathroom. Um, in the movies, you see people chatting and shitting together. It's, it's, uh, so I, I don't know what to think, if uh, it is because a lack of God or because we have um, the Yazidis think that God has two faces, the Yazidis. One face is a good God and the other one is a bad God. It's one God but it has two faces. Venus. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we are now with this face of the God. The face of the God that he's, he is Drissans. This is something that uh, Lacan said in this seminar, uh, in page 166, in, in, no, 66, excuse me, in English, in which he says, when I say the use of language, I do not mean that we use it. It is language that uses us. Language employs us, and that is how it enjoys. This is why the only chance for the existence of God is that he, with a capital H, enjoys. And he is Jesus. So maybe my answer to you would have to be that we are in a moment in which uh, God is everywhere, the God of Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Gil, be before we go to the next question, I, I think Florencia had, had something to add. I don't know whether it's on that question. Uh, Florencia, do you want to add something or, or save it for later? Um, Yes, thank you, Roger. Um, and thank you very much, Susanna, for this wonderful reading um, of, this, of this chapter. Um, it's been incredibly teaching. Um, and it made me... Can you hear me okay? Yes, very good. Okay. Uh, it made me suddenly remember a supervisor I had, I encountered when I first started my practice uh, some 20 years ago, it was in a very big psychiatric hospital, about 1,800 beds. Uh, and uh, it was an encounter with the clinic that, uh, as you can imagine, uh, uh, didn't have a lot of veiling. Mm -hmm. And this supervi supervisor, I brought a case and um, uh -huh. it was 
it was a, a, a man who had converted to several religions throughout his life um, as a way to uh, build some solution. And when I mentioned something, the supervisor told me, and have you read this? And it was a reference to Judaism. And I said, no. And she got very angry and she told me, you cannot work with psychosis in particular and with psychoanalysis in general without studying history of religions. And I never forgot that. And so this is what your presentation evoked for me. Thank you. It, it's also been a fine reminder that one can't practice psychoanalysis without studying a bit of Lacan. Gil, um, did you have another question? Yes, I have uh, four of them. <laughs> I don't know if I have. The, 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 the last one is an hypo hypothesis about the effect of truth that uh, Susanna found in this, uh, in this uh, uh, chapter, as she, she told us. The second one is about truth. Uh, you said uh, that uh, <coughs> you found this uh, uh, very nice formula of uh, the ultimate meaning of the idea of the father, which ultimate uh, meaning, which is uh, uh, truth for Freud. That's what uh, truth for Freud. But there, are, there were two uh, two nuances, two two uh, in the definition of truth that you made. The first one was the murder of the father itself as an ahistoric event which is printed in the, on the body, in the body, on the body, on the flesh, as a letter, and come back later as a truth and uh, as the truth of faith and religion. This was the first. Afterwards, when you spoke about the function of ignorance, you spoke about of truth as knowledge about sexuality, uh, which is the opposite, which, which is the opposite of the established knowledge that doesn't, that uh, is not searching for uh, an effect of truth. So you see, it's it's two two nuances. The one is the 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 trauma printed like a like a letter on the body, and the other one is the is this uh, uh, sexual knowledge. So here we can see also the connection between the murder and sex, the murder of the father and the sexual knowledge. The two of them are traumatic. Uh, the the two of them you cannot tell them. The two of them you cannot tell. It's a like they, they are kind of a hole in the symbolic. They cannot be said, l'indicible, we say in French. Yes? But, but they can be written, and you, you have an access to them by effects of truth, and not by established knowledge. So I wondered if, uh, if it can be related to the definition that Lacan makes uh, of the Midrash. I, now I, it's a... It's an adventure, yes, but this question. But uh, I wonder it's, it, it can be uh, related to deep. The, 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 the definition that you mentioned, that it's a way of taking distance from the written by the spoken word. Uh, 
The Midrash would be a way to treat trauma of the signifier printed on the body by taking distance of the letter, for example. Could we say that? It, this question is also related to what you brought in the end of your intervention, namely the, the, the inexistence of sexual relation that Lacan speaks about. Here there is no, uh, there's no letter anymore because precisely uh, if there's no sexual relation, it is because it cannot be written. So uh, this is why I think truth does not have a big credit at the end of the, of the teaching of Lacan uh, because it cannot say anything about something that is not written, the real. Uh, uh, truth, truth effects are, are nothing but a make-belief, if we, if we think it like this. Susanna, you will need to un unmute yourself now. Thank you. I agree with you, Gil, and I thank you for having read the paper so thoroughly. Uh, that's why uh, it has changed our behavior when interpreting, and that's why uh, we come to a state of uh, the best interpretation is the cut of the session and the best interpretation is uh, a crime, not a word. Um, yes, I think that uh, in analysis we try to let the patient not bother him because if we don't bother the analysants, they do a very good work. So we have to try not to bother the analysants and let them try their way of lying about what is written. Lying or remembering that the truth and the lie are the same, meaning it's a semblance of truth or a truth that has this varieté, is variation. So the important thing is, and that's why I wanted to discuss the Oedipus complex and the flight talks, that if you have your uh, semblance of truth and you impose it on the, on the patient, two things can happen. Or the patient is re-educated and not analyzed, is not analyzed, or it goes out like the guy of the flight talks with a perversion. Uh, meaning that, um, yes, you, we have to acknowledge that truth is a semblant and uh, to respect the way an analysant invents his own way of reading, reading what is written. And he doesn't have to convince us. That's it. Uh, one point more is that uh, when we speak about uh, the non-existence of uh, uh, sexual relation, uh, it, now he, we speak about something that is not written. This yeah. was my second point. point. Uh, it's, uh, maybe there uh, something about what, what you say about going in a direction that we, we can all, only go in, in the direction of the real, but not, uh, not more than that. Yes, but, but Lacan said that he had a problem with this aphorism 
there is no sexual relation, but because he had to bring it through a no. Mm -hmm. And I think this uh, un uncomfort of Lacan has to do with what you say. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't but say there is no sexual relation. Uh, it's a problem. The problem is um, language in the body. How do we put together language in the body? That's why we have to take uh, our uh, help from the poets, for instance, uh, or the musicians, in, in general, from the artists, because they are the people that try best to connect something to the body, hmm? something that can be an image or can be a sound or can be a word. Hmm? Now my, my next, if I can continue, Gordon. Gil, before we go into that, could, could I just ask for some clarification in relation to, to the previous question? Because on this question of saying that there is no sexual relation, because Susanna, you extracted that very intriguing citation from speaking to, to brick walls from Santan, which that could I ask you to say something about that that quotation, clarify something that you took from the session of the second of December, nineteen seventy one, where uh, page sixty one you take it from there is no sexual relation for the beings that speak. And then he goes on to say, there's no sexual relations because we speak and we speak because there is no sexual relation. It's, it's that we speak in the space where something is not written as, as, we, as we do each time we meet here. But then it goes on to say, uh, uh, the translation, the, the being speaks, it is only from speech that jouissance proceeds that which is called sexual jouissance, to be differentiated from the sexual relation. So as far as I'm it's, it's, the translation is maybe a bit tangled, but there's one question about the relation between speech and the sexual relation. There's another question about the relation between speech and jouissance. But what it seems to amount to is that jouissance is not equivalent to the sexual relation. There's a jouissance of speech and the sexual relation is something else. So would there be something we can say about the relation between speech and jouissance that happens in the foreclosure of the sexual relation? If you can say something about the quotation more than about my question. Uh, if I can say, um, I, I don't understand very good what bothers you. What, what is that? You can I try to formulate it better? Because it's almost as if he's saying that the jouissance that proceeds from speech is the jouissance that is called sexual. But the jouissance that is called sexual has to be differentiated from the sexual relation. Yes. I think what he said is, uh, I have to bring things from other places, not that, uh, in fact, the sexual jouissance uh, that has to do with the body of another person, which is sexual, because for Lacan, uh, of course, um, onanism is not sexual. It's the, the enjoyment in your own uh, body. Uh, so, 
sexual jouissance since it has to do with another body that you had to make from that body a sexual object means that you came to the bed with something uh, that you found it and you um, made uh, for a semblance of sexual relation can be uh, happen on the in the bed, mm -hmm. meaning that it has to go through the semblance. That's why uh, he once said that making somebody my sexual uh, object means that he fits my fantasy of what is uh, sexual, what is... Uh... Thank you, Susanna. It also seems to me that there's a version there that, that elaborates something that Gill's first question touched on, the idea that sexual knowledge today doesn't go via the other, what Gill was saying about the, the demonstration of this, of bodies in sexual activity on all corners. So we can, I think as Gilda asked, what happens to the sexual non-relation under these terms where to some extent we, we are flooded with, with demonstration of the enjoyment of bodies, um, but without having to go via the eroticization of a relation to the other. Gil, you, you had another question which might be better formulated. <laughs> no. Than mine, not, not than yours. I, don't, I want to go back to. Uh, anyway, the, what you mentioned now, it's, uh, it's interesting because uh, but it's, a, it's a whole of a, of a theme. You, the, I think that uh, we will be able to uh, follow in the next, uh, uh, the next uh, study days of the SAF about the uh, attentat sexuel. It's, uh, it's this, this question, we, we try to, to, to take this question, this uh, question, civilization, the question of civilization in, into account. But I wanted to, to come back to, uh, to the point that um, uh, you already answered partly about it, but about, about the case of the fly talks. Uh, uh, I think it is very useful uh, what you said about it, uh, to, and the, maybe it's, uh, it's, it's, it's worth to, to develop it a little bit uh, more. I remind only the, 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 the point that is uh, treated uh, around this case. It's, it's the patient's dream about a man with an armor, armor, yes, moving forwards uh, behind him, uh, armed with a needle of lytox, yes. And the analyst uh, with a woman, it's important, I think, in this case, uh, interprets saying that this figure is, one of the is, is the one of the phallic mother, uh, which means in the transference that uh, because she's behind him, in a way, uh, in the, because he's in, in, on, on the coach and she's behind. So it, it means that it's, it's, it is the analyst who is the, the phallic uh, mother. And Lacan says that uh, the way of bringing the patient to the reality of the situation, to her, in fact, uh, 
wanting him to, to put his desire into the right place, because this means it's not me. <laughs> this, this means you have to desire uh, elsewhere, yes, in a way. So in, in uh, response to it, he wants to make life, love to her. Uh, and, uh, and then he has this, uh, this uh, transitory uh, voyeurist uh, perversion, yes, to go to see uh, women uh, in the toilets. Uh, so uh, I, I'm repeating a little bit uh, what you said, but I want to, I think it's, uh, it's worth to stress that uh, using the Oedipus as a myth that would regulate the life of the analysant, uh, the analyst is pushing the subject to, to acknowledge his, his uh, Oedipal desires. Uh, and uh, it is an interpretation in the name of the father in the, the I, I talk, in a way so it's an interpretation stop stop to desire in that way that's uh, in a way uh, so it's uh, it's an, in, the, in the name of prohibition the uh, and and the the, the subject uh, is uh, revolts or is revolting or yes revolts uh, so the, I think also there's a kind of, of lack of decency or pudeur. I don't know what do you say pudeur, pudeur, pudor. Yeah, we don't hear your microphone. Maybe modesty at that stage. Okay. If we're going to distinguish modesty from shame. Okay. So there's a lack of, of shame of uh, modesty in this interpretation. Too much sexual knowledge resulting by by this acting out. What do you say? Uh, what I say is as follows. Uh, I try to stress that when I said the real presence of the analyst, I put it in, uh, how do you say in English? It's not brackets. In quotes, quotation in marks. Quotes. Quotes. Why? Yeah. Because one thing that uh, Lacan is uh, making a joke from uh, Rudle Bovisi is because she understands as if uh, in analysis you have to offer yourself as a real presence, mm -hmm. for instance in this case of the phallic mother, and from there you act and you push the patient to be uh, the right editor, the one that behaves, let's say. Now, um, Lacan uh, jokes about this real presence because in, in, in other places further on in the seminar, in the sixth seminar, and in other seminars, he asks what is the real presence? The real presence is a, a, a phrase from, from Christian tomb where you, you have in the communion the real presence of the Christ in the, in the bread that you eat that nowadays is a problem because of the corona. Now, uh, this real presence, in one place, Lacan says, what can we call the real presence? The real presence is presenting the signifier of the impossibility of having a right signifier, which is the phallus. The phallus as a signifier of signification. Uh, in, in, the, in the case of Ruth Lebovici, 
Um, you have some real presence, Susanna. Yes, I have a real presence <laughs> of my partner, yes. Um, uh, in the description she makes, she also says that he was looking at her legs. Yeah, yeah. And she was very happy about that because if he looks at her legs, about being compliment about her legs, is also that he's going to be the right patient, meaning the Oedipus. Mm -hmm. And the problem was that this leg belongs to the president of the association because she was the wife of the uh, Bovisi. Then, then he was the president of the IPA. And he sent the patient to his wife. Uh, it is it's very funny and, and very... Uh, Lacan doesn't say when he speaks about the flight talks that uh, about the Oedipus complex, but it's the best way that I had to understand which is the problem that Lacan fights against. The problem of um, the needs um, regulating, regulating life, regulating our work. In the beginning of the seminar, when in the first lesson of this seminar, the 17th, he criticizes himself and he says, oh, I am looking for meaning. I am looking for meaning. And he says again, well, that's what we human people do. We look for meaning. And in analysis, a way of having meaning very at hand is the Oedipus complex. But you have to wait to see what is the meaning that the analysis will invent. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think it's really good to learn this case. Yeah. Thank you, Susanna. Gil, I, I know Vicente had a question. Shall we just, uh, Vicente, if, if your comment is still is still live, with Vicente Palomero, and, and then we'll follow up with. Yes. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you very much, Susanna, for your reading, your interesting reading of this uh, seminar, this chapter. Susanna, can you mute your mic for the feedback, please? Yes. Just, uh, just going back to to the conversation, the dialogue that uh, Gil and you had uh, five minutes ago, because there have been lots of things after. And I, um, I was wondering if you, if we could uh, reread the title of this chapter, um, saying that instead of or making an, a certain homology between um, Yehaves and the unconscious. I, I mean, um, why we could probably say, because uh, Gil, Gil said that uh, the, the sexual relationship that is not written, what is, and, and, the, and the dialogue um, was about what is written and what is not written. Um, this is, the thing, this, this, this is the, the, the subject thing that we are um, dealing with in this chapter. And I, I, I wonder if we could not say that the unconscious, we could call it the 
the, un the ferocity, the unconscious ferocity in uh, regarding the question that the unconscious does not know that there, that there is no sexual relationship, that the knowledge of the unconscious is a knowledge that, like Yahweh shows us in the myth, Yahweh does not know, ignores, that there is no sexual relationship. So we could reread this question of not being written as uh, a definition of what is the unconscious as such, the, the Freudian unconscious. And I, I would even say that in this chapter, we see that Lacan starts an operation uh, of um, eliminating, we could say, the myth of the dead father. Uh, by but taking a concept uh, from Levi-Strauss, which is the term of equivalence. Because what is stri uh, striking in this question of the myth is, uh, I mean, not the Oedipus only, because Lacan says uh, the Oedipus complex is a dream, is Freud, Freud's dream. Then uh, Moses, uh, Moses and monotheism is an oddity. It's a strange text. We all agree with this. And, uh, and totem and taboo, which is the real myth, the Freudian myth, is totem and taboo, which is a, which is a myth of the real father. Lacan um, wants to eliminate the, the myth of the dead father and replacing it with a question that we could call it, um, pointing out the equivalence between the dead father and the Jewish sons of old women, which is at stake in this quest, in this uh, seminar. So the point of the myth that is going to stay in Lacan's teaching, that is going to remain in his teaching at the level of his, of this dead father, is the an equivalence between two things that are nothing, that, that, that have nothing to do. The death of the father, and the question of all the women, all that all the women doesn't exist, that the Jewish sons of all the women is exactly, it is something that does not exist. And I think that is, this is going to be developed by Lacan uh, in the following seminars, uh, especially in the seminar um, Dan Discours qui ne serait du semblant, of a discourse that wouldn't be... Uh, Assemblant. Assemblant. No, and that, that was something that I, I thought when uh, listening the question that Gil asked to ask uh, Susana, the question about what is not written. So we could say that the ignorance of the unconscious, that the, the unconscious ignores that there is no sexual relationship and that it always repeats a knowledge which not knowing that there is, there is no such a thing that a sexual relationship. Would you agree with me? Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. I shall uh, go to the beginning of your path uh, because you, you made a, a very long uh, travel, which I find a very good one and very teaching, this intervention of yours. 
but I would like to do something from, with the beginning. When you said, you proposed, that we could take the word Yehovah and put the unconscious there, I remembered my beginning of studying Lacan with uh, Masota because he was in Buenos Aires then. Before he loved you, he loved us, the Porteños. Now, um, what we uh, find is in the unconscious, uh, Freud says you can't know that there is a vagina in the analysis because what it exists in the unconscious is the phallus because of the universal theory of the phallus, meaning our psychic apparatus he is built on a delirium, on a delirium according to which everything has a phallus. And uh, from that point of view, yes, the unconscious is ignorant of the fact that there are animals that are men and animals that are women because there is only one signifier which is the phallus now when in santom lacan says that um, there is no equivalence because i didn't mention that because the place i chose for the quote doesn't say it but uh, what we can understand from Santom is that when a person is not in the discourse, is not part of this delirium of the universality of the phallus, eh, there is no equivalence in the unconscious between the woman and the man. So there is sexual relation because when do we have sexual relation? When the two parts that participate in the act are different, are completely different, mm? which means that there is no equivalence. That's why he says in psychosis there is no equivalence, therefore there is sexual relation, whereas in the regular people, in the neurotics, in the unconscious, there is an ignorance of the fact that we have we are built uh, differently, women and men. We don't know what is this difference. We can't say it because it's a real that can't be said. We can only invent, make beliefs of what is a woman and what is a man. But you, you said many things that are, we could make a seminar about what you said in your intervention. <laughs> was not my intention. <laughs> Just yes, proposing so. that if, 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 if there is no, if the, there is, uh, the sexual relationship is not written, as uh, Gil pointed out, then why not translating this Yehavis uh, ignorance as saying that the ignorance, talking about the ignorance of the unconscious, that's just the point, uh, because the unconscious is a knowledge that works always saying the same thing. That is to say, not knowing that there is no sexual relationship, which is not written. Just this. Uh, thank you, uh, Each time we open this terrain, we see, yes, we could elaborate a whole 
seminar around some of these questions. Just a, a brief comment on that that question of equivalence, because I, I, I think it's, it's something that struck me in your elaboration, and it also goes back to a version of Gill's initial question about the contemporary civilization. Because to some extent, aren't we faced with a civilization of equivalence? The very democratic principle is each one equivalent. And the whole question, shall we say, of the, of, of the whatever we call it under the guise of feminism, is equivalence for all. And we can see in the name of the most liberal principles of upholding democracy, we unleash a principle of equivalence that puts in question all of everything that's played out around the, the, the non-report how we trace out those questions at a social and political level would again be a question, shall we say, for another seminar. We, we, we don't have unlimited today time today, as always. I know that Rick had flagged up a question, and I know that Gil probably has another question in store. Um, let's, let, let's see how that goes, and then we'll, we'll see what's left. Okay? Uh, Rick? Okay, thank you very much. Can you hear me? Hello? Yeah? I can hear you, Rick. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, yes, Susanna, a, a fantastic talk, and as Ferencia was saying, extremely teaching. I will keep my question very short because we're running out of time. I'm very aware of that. Uh, but when you were talking and when Gil was talking, and uh, Vicente also referred to it, the dynamic between what is written and what is not written, uh, I, I, what struck me is that obviously the Torah is uh, is about a written, it's a written text. And whether in, in, in some ways in how the Jewish people read the Torah, there is that dynamic between the written and what is not written. In other words, a reading towards the real. And so my question to be brief here, is there something about the Torah that is that functions like a symptom for the for the Jewish people? In other words, a reading towards the letter, towards the traces, uh, on the body and so on. That's that's my question. Excellent question, Rick. Thank you, uh, Susanna or or Gil. You want to say something about that? Well, uh, being Jewish doesn't make me able to answer to that. I think the idea you had that the Torah is the symptom for a Jewish person if he is religious. I like the idea you 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 have. Yes, could be because the Torah and the Alaha, all the, all the laws, they function as a santom, meaning that this is the way the religious Jews suffer and enjoy. Why, why did they decide? I once uh, asked this great rabbi, which is the brother of my partner, I have to say. I asked him, a, why did they decide in the Talmud that it, it would have been better not to have been born? How can that be? When I know that suicide is forbidden and your, your body is not yours, it, ha it has been lent to you. Uh, he told me that, uh, well, because uh, being alive, having your life, having been born, comes together with a lot of suffering, with a lot of obligations you have towards God. Mm -hmm. So it is also a way of living in community. 
Now, this could be a symptom if we say the symptom is the symptom in the moment in which it has become social, social level, social level. Yes, the, the religion is a kind of symptom because makes you suffer, makes you enjoy, connects you to the community, is the perfect symptom. And it, it tells you when you can sleep with your husband, when you can't, in this, in this moment, is, is, uh, yes. From this way is a kind of regulation. Uh, in, and in fact, the symptom is a kind of regulation of life. A regulation that you invited. You invent it, and you invite it also. <laughs> Thank yes, you very well, much, uh, Susanna. Although, Rick, at the heart of your question, the notion of the Santron as a reading of what not has been written, what has not been written, I think is a very fine formulation and goes absolutely to the heart of the matter, which is also intrinsic to the approach, shall we say, of, of Selen to exactly to reading in the scripture what has not been written and then constructing what he wants it to say. Gil, um, shall we give you something approaching the, the, the last word? Maybe. Uh, yes. work. You, you, have, you showed me a work of yours, Gil, in which you study perfectly uh, this work that uh, Celine had made in Kako on the Torah with the letters. It was very interesting for me to read it. Yeah, it's, a, it's an old story, yes. 30 years ago I wrote it. Yeah. Uh, it's in the... In the um, in, uh, Le Feuillet du Courtil, number 11. But I, I, I had two questions now. I don't, we don't have time. I, I'll tell the two of them in a shortened way, and uh, you will choose maybe the one you want to, to respond to. The, the, the first one was about I, 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 I took again the, this question of uh, equivalency and uh, uh, the, the woman as a symptom of the, of the man, the man is the ravage of the woman. Uh, uh, but afterwards, I, because uh, I, I asked about what you say about the substitution of prohibition for impossibility is incomplete, because uh, we, we we are used to think uh, that analysis uh, in analysis this substitution is obtained. We can do this substitution between prohibition and uh, impossibility in. Uh, Yes, an impossibility. Well, that, that's my question, because why did I bring... There was a discussion about prohibition uh, some weeks ago in this web seminar, and that made me find this place in Lacan. Um, I find that Lacan himself had to explain to himself why the idea of prohibition stays even though we, we know logically that the problem is the impossibility. But nevertheless, in our thoughts, the thought has to orient themselves, themselves with the idea of prohibition. Uh, one thing that maybe is connected to this, I'm not sure I have to think about it, is that he mentions, that he mentions in the seminar, uh, the seventh seminar in, on the ethics, that uh, in the Ten Commandments, 
it doesn't say that you are is prohibited to sleep with your mother. It doesn't say. And he said, saying that you have to honor your father and your mother doesn't count as saying you don't have to sleep with her. Mm-hmm. And he answers to this oddity by saying that uh, this incest, this incest of a man with his mother would be um, impossi- the impossibility of speech, the possibility of demand. No? Meaning that uh, I think that up to the end, he thinks that there is a prohibition that falls on the enjoyment of your body and the enjoyment of the place for where your body comes, which is the body of your mother. And I, I think that we can't get rid of that in our thoughts. It's true, it's true though, that in analysis, the um, understanding of the impossibility gives you a lot of freedom. Mm-hmm. That, precisely, yeah. because knowing that there is something impossible gives you freedom. But it means also that in analysis, you accept impotence. You accept impotence as uh, the human uh, condition in front of the impossibility. And Miller uh, has a very nice comment when he presents the Jeffargo New York, and he says uh, something, I don't remember exactly the words, but he says that psychoanalysis it makes us uh, friends with impotence, at least the impotence respects the real. Impotence respects the real. So in analysis, we come uh, to, to be friends with our impotence and when we're the impossibility. This is very interesting, yes. You could, uh, you know, this, uh, this case of, um, my analysis with Freud of Cardiner, of, uh, uh, and uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a little bit, a little story there of uh, someone who is, who is in, analysis, in analysis, and he becomes impotent during analysis, at the end of analysis, and uh, and he comes to complaints, to complaint uh, in Freud's. Uh, seeing Freud, I, I finished my analysis and I'm impotent. And Freud listened to him 45 minutes and then he follow him, uh, he goes into the, to the door and tell him, now I see that you are somebody, a good guy, that you are a good guy now. Yeah. We don't hear you, don't you? There was a story between women because he came to Vin, yes, uh, yes, yes, the, the, the mistress, yes, and he yes. with the mistress or something like this, or with the, or with the wife. I don't remember which uh, of them. Yes, uh, it, 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 I think it means that now that you you are you are impotent with your wife, that you are uh, not uh, fidel. How do you say uh, you're not uh, faithful. Uh, faithful, faithful, faithful. Faithful for the, now that you can be 
impotent with the woman you are not faith, faithful to, you are, you are somebody, you are a good man, mm -hmm. a good guy, something like that. It was the Lacanian intervention of Freud. Yeah. That's excellent. I, I thank you all so much. We, we arrive at the point that Susanna mentioned of something that can't be, get rid, can't be got rid of, but also something which, which remains to be said at the point where something is, is, never ceases to not write itself. Um, I thank Susanna in particular, Gil, for, for his assistance, all of you for this, this demonstration, shall we say, of the power of speech and multiple voices in conversation in working this terrain. And especially Susanna at the last, and Gil, for opening up not just that furrow that takes us from impotence to impossibility, but maybe also opens up some echoes in the elithosphere for next week's presentation by Hirt Hurnet and Veronique Kourous. We look forward to seeing you all again next week. Thank you once again. Bye-bye. It was very good. <laughs>